and we ended up meeting someone that we're trying to get him as an advisor. And he basically told us that this was never going to work, that we should go back to school or, or, you know, join some other company. Welcome to the Decibel Podcast. Today, I'm here with my friend, Ricardo Oliveira, co-founder and CTO of Thousand Eyes. For those of you that don't know Thousand Eyes, it is the Google Maps for the entire internet, giving every company a real-time view as to how their traffic flows through the internet today. The company was an untold success story until it was acquired by Cisco just a couple of years ago. Ricardo has been a founder advisor here at Decibel and a great friend to many of our founders, and I am very excited to have him join us today. Ricardo, it is great to have you, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me in the show. It's great to be here and share a little bit about myself and Thousand Eyes story, so I'm very excited about that. Thousand Eyes was a very successful company, and I know a lot has been written about its history, but I don't think everyone knows your personal story. So would you mind telling us about where you grew up and your path to eventually starting a company? Sounds good. So let's see. So I'm originally from Portugal, that tiny country, like on the West coast of Europe. I grew up there. My family's still there. And I did uh, my undergrad there actually in electrical engineering. And I worked for a couple of years in industry as well. But I'm, I'm basically from a small town on the north part of Portugal, uh, close to uh, Porto. Porto is like the second biggest city there. I went to school there at the University of Porto there. I did my undergrad in, in electrical engineering. I spent like five years at the time. That's so degrees in Europe tend to be on the longer side or used to be. Now I think they, they cut them short, but that's where basically, uh, you know, I start working on networks and computers and all that stuff. Like we're talking about late nineties, I probably dating myself, but you know, the, the internet was also, uh, you know, becoming more and more widespread at that time and more popular with the. Netscape browser and all that. My early journey was uh, almost like in tandem with those early days of the internet, which was great. So you grew up in Portugal and eventually made your way to the U.S. for your PhD. But when did you know that you wanted to become a founder or to become some sort of technical founder? Uh, that took a while. So when I came to the U.S., I basically wanted to, you know, study and do research on on computer networks and the internet and. Uh, that's how I end up in the, at UCLA and uh, UCLA had, uh, and still has, but has a, a lot of research on, uh, you know, computer networks. It was one of the first nodes of the internet. People don't usually know this. So the first two nodes of the internet was Stanford and UCLA, and, uh, they actually exchanged a message. The first message exchange was supposed to be login, L-O-G-I-N, uh, but only the first two letters went through <laughs> and then the system <laughs> collapsed. <laughs> So it just L O low, <laughs> low and behold. So, and the, the person at UCLA in charge of that was, uh, called Leonard Kleinrock, who, you know, some folks probably heard about him. He was, uh, you know, the, the person that actually, uh, developed a lot of the queuing theory and be, behind the, you know, the packet transmissions and so on. But the fact that I was at UCLA and doing a PhD, so I spent a lot of time there, uh, uh, you know, five, six years researching and joined this research group that was very focused on internet routing. And I had to go through this journey of, you know, really understanding how the, you know, internet routing work and publishing some papers and even building some free tools that network operators in particular could use to, to help them in their daily work. And I need to give some credits to my advisor at the time. So, uh, Professor Li Zhang, uh, so she really pushed students to be more applied and participate in this conference called NANOG, North American Network Operators Group. 
still exists, but it's, it's a forum basically for, you know, professionals that work on telecommunications, network engineers to exchange ideas and talk about best practices and so on. I think a lot of technical founders ask themselves, should I go to grad school? Should I get a master's? And in particular, should I get a PhD before I go and start a company? Would you recommend that founders go get a PhD or get a graduate degree before they start a company looking back? I can't say I recommend. I mean, I honestly, I think I probably have too much years of education. I mean, you, you can build a successful company without having a graduate degree, but in our case, it helped a lot because we actually had to have that domain knowledge and that deep understanding of how things worked and, and also that mentality around, around measuring things and, you know, publishing results, looking at big data and so on. I would say the PhD helps in more than anything in helping solving problems. So you're giving a problem and, you know, it provides you training to iterate towards a solution, but it's a lot of investment also in terms of time, right? Here in the US, you're looking at five years of writing papers and doing, you know, research work. So I guess if you're really passionate about, about what you do, that might be a good option. But if you, you know, if you're prioritizing more like building a, a company, um, then, you know, just do it. Maybe start doing it and going through the problems. It's, it's a better way to learn rather than, you know, being five years in a PhD program. And also at UCLA, by the way, was when I ended up meeting my future co-founder, uh, Mohit Lat. So he was part of the same research group. I did publish a lot of papers with him and I work a lot with him. So, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, we realized we could work well together, we had passion about subjects. So that, uh you know, planted to see that, you know, we, we could probably do something significant. And in particular, when we look at in the state of affairs around tools for network monitoring, we realized there was a big gap there because most of the solutions that we look at were, uh, you know, more focused around data centers and local networks, but there was really no solution out there for internet wide visibility. So. Since you've mentioned Mohit, I think it'd be great to bring him into the story now. And for those that don't know Mohit, he was the co-founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes, and we've also had him on the show. He has famously described himself as somebody who was effectively unemployable until he started <laughs> a company with you. So I'd, I'd love to get the whole story. When did you first meet him? And what eventually led you guys to start Thousand Eyes? Right. So I think I met him on my second year of, of my PhD. And he, at the time he was already working in my, at the research group I would, I would join. And he was my t teaching assistant, I, I believe, or he was helping the class where that I was taking from his advisor. So that was my first kind of contact with Mohit. And I still remember like the, the first Mohit picture uh, that I have in my mind is someone like with a with a t-shirt and flip-flops and sand oh, sandals, actually not even flip-flops and jeans. Uh, and he, he, you know, he will, you would, you know, answer any questions you have about around BGP and explain BGP to people and so on. And also using chopsticks, which is a technique that I never saw before. So that was pretty fun. So that was first contact I had with him. And then eventually I joined the group there where he was working. So we became like peers, part of the same research group. And that was really what started our collaboration at that point, because then we, we started basically publishing papers together, re doing research together. And if you look at our list of papers, probably most of them have both of our names there. 
So that was basically how everything started. And in 2009, you guys decided to start Thousand Eyes. But let's go back in time. This was a terrible time to start a company. What gave you guys the confidence and the inspiration to do that? That's a good question. Yeah, and, and you're right. It was, it was a really bad time. And not only that, like we, we were in, in L.A. at the time, right? So L.A. is not known to, for have a very big community around the enterprise space. So we basically had to think, what can we do to maximize our chances of success of actually, you know, getting some funding and, you know, actually bootstrapping or starting the company. And we decided two things. First thing is we need to get out of LA and move to, to the Bay Area. By the way, this might not be applicable currently. So this was at the time we're talking about 10 years ago. And, and then the second thing is let's uh, try the government funding route and go through a National Science Foundation SBIR program. So that's a program that basically helps academic projects to be commercialized. So they give you a small grant and basically there's no strings attached there. There is a lot of paperwork and red tape involved there. But that those two actions that we did, I think really helped us because we didn't have a lot to network here in, uh, in Silicon Valley, right? So having the government being our major sponsor really helped there. And then as, as we moved here, we start definitely building that network and you know, getting to know more and more people here and then things uh, definitely improve in terms of, uh, you know, of the ecosystem support, but it took, it took a while to get there. You started Thousand Eyes in Los Angeles out of a university in 2009. So not a great time to go ask venture capitalists for money. You ended up getting a government grant. Looking back, would you recommend that founders consider government grants as a way to get themselves off the ground? No, <laughs> not this day and age. No, I mean, look, uh, it's it's certainly an option for some some projects potentially if they're very academically rooted projects. But uh, I think there's easier ways currently to get funding uh, besides going to the government. But in our case, it did obviously it was very instrumental the the SBIR projects, and we actually had, um, you know, a very, a very good uh, project manager on the SBR side that we still keep in touch to this date. But I think today there's, uh, there's probably better options for the, for a funder, uh, in terms of funding than SBIR, because it's, it is a lot of red tape and bureaucracy. I mean, the, the, the pro, I guess, is in, on the equity side, you have your cap table clean. You don't need to sacrifice equity. But um, the amounts also are not, you know, especially for the current markets, are not are, are relatively small, right? Uh, our first tranche, I think, was about 150k. So in the current dates, that's that's not a lot. I, I, they probably have updated over time, but I'm 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 pretty sure it's still not to the compared to anything you can get from the private side. So let's go back to the early days of Thousand Eyes. So you started the company in a recession. You have the government grant. Walk me through some of the highest highs and the lowest lows looking back. Well, the, the, the first customer was definitely one of the big highs I can remember. And uh, that happened, I believe, in late 2011. I remember I was in the airport going back home for Christmas and I got, got a call from Mohit and he basically shared the news that we, we had close, uh, you know, uh, very signed, which was our first customer. And uh, that was really exciting. Just the fact that you have one customer that is willing to actually pay you money for your product. I don't know if Mohit shared this story, but this happened even before we, we had a product. So we were just talking with a lot of people. We had just moved to the Bay Area. 
we're trying to grow our network and we are just meeting a lot of people and we end up meeting someone that um, we look up to and we're trying to get him as an advisor and we were trying to explain him what we're trying to do and so on, the concept. And he basically, he basically told, told us that this, this was never going to work, that we should go back to school or, or, you know, join some other company. And I remember coming back from that meeting, me and Mohit, and we were really depressed <laughs> looking at each other. <laughs> And then um, that was one of the lows I can remember. And But then the funny story about that is that that exact person later on became, you know, a sponsor in one of our customers' uh, companies and became really an advocate of the company. So that, that was interesting to see that trend there. That's one of the lows there. But, you know, there's always cases of things that don't, don't go the way you want or surprises or problems that happen. You know, I wanted to go into the details of that story. Many founders try to get validation from outsiders or mentors or people that they respect. A lot of people are very honest with founders. They'll say, this is going to be hard or it's not going to work or it's going to be a complete failure. How did you deal with some of those objections when you, <laughs> when you were looking for validation or confidence, but instead got honest feedback that, yeah. Look, a lot of startups don't make it, and this one might just not make it. Yeah, but it's it's um, you know it's hard to deal with it, and and honestly, I do think you need to be very good handling rejection as a founder, especially in the early days, because you don't have a product. You know, people might not know you, and lot lots of folks you're trying to pitch or convince to join as an advisor or convert as a customer, they're just going to say no, right? So you're going to get, you know, eight no's or ten no, nine no's for every yes that you get, right? And I think the most important thing is trying to understand what is someone trying to say, like why is someone not believing in your vision and try to take some lessons from there. Is there something you can improve on based on, on the feedback of the person? Or, you know, maybe the customer is just not a good customer at all, like, because the problem you're trying to solve is not relevant for that customer. So having that constructive mindset, I, th I think it's very important. And learn from rejections, basically take that as positives. You started a very technical company. You had to recruit very technical employees and you sold to a very technical buyer. I think because of that, you had to take a slightly different path than a lot of people who raise a lot of money and try to spend a lot of money on sales and marketing and recruiting in order to get big fast. Talk about what it takes to build a company more methodically in an era where perhaps capital is more freely available and everybody thinks that you need to grow at all costs. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I, I think it's important to think about it by milestones, right? Um, especially when you're talking about capital raising and spending. Think about what do you want to do with the capital that you have, right? Uh, do you want to get to 10 customers, 50 customers? Do you want to get to a, you know, a certain amount of revenue? So it's important to have that very well defined and then raise enough such that you get to that milestone. Because the, the problem of raising too much, obviously, is then, you know, or the valuation might, it's also going to increase potentially. And then, you you know, as you raise different runs, you, you're going to need to be able to sustain that growth of valuation. And for stock options in particular, then it's, it's it becomes very expensive to exercise them for employees, for example. So having, a you know, an overblown valuation has its own issues, right? So just think about company growth in terms of milestones and having the right structure and financials for that phase of the company. And each phase, uh, you know, you're going to need 
different uh, funds and different spending and different ways of spending the money, right? Often I, I see cases of folks like just boasting about valuations and, you know, unicorns and decacorns and all that stuff. But I do think it's also in, it's very important to, to keep in mind what type of company you're, you're creating and be a sustainable business, right? And to be a sustainable business, you need to have things balanced in terms of revenue and in terms of expenses, obviously. So I want to ask a question that is really important to a lot of our listeners. So if you go back to your younger self, the 20-something-year-old that is a graduate student that is thinking about starting Thousand Eyes, what advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, this is this is a weird question because it's like if I do the back-to-the-future kind of problem, you go back in time and then I tell myself not to do that and then I, I end up entering into a time paradox. <laughs> I'm not, end up not existing thousand eyes or myself <laughs> only, but, uh, <laughs> only only a PhD student can get caught up in answering the question but I do I do understand where you're coming from um, no but I look I think it's um, if I give an advice to my, my younger self is be patient you know growing a business takes time in our case it took almost you know, 10 years to, to the m event, right? So it's, it's a long time and you need to be patient and things will happen. And the important thing is, you know, is to solve the problems that you face. I mean, if you're confident that you're, you're solving the problems and making progress and you're improving, I think that's the most important thing. And having also like a co-founder or someone that can basically go through the problems in, with you and be there on a journey with you all all the time. I think that's that's important because if, if you're by yourself, it's, it's hard because you, you might not have someone to talk to. If you're down, there's no no other person to bring you up. So that's always tougher. But uh, but yeah, coming back to your question, I think in my case was you know just just be patient and you know things will happen. When a founder calls you today and they have an exciting idea and they're ready to take that leap, and they're going to start a company, and you know deep down inside just how hard it is, what do you do? Do you encourage them? Do you caution them? How do you respond to those friends that now reach out? Yeah, I'm, I'm very positive overall, so I, I think I tend to in- encourage them. I mean, it depends all, obviously on, on the idea as well, right? But uh, in general, I, I tend to be more constructive and positive because I, ne- I know that for me it was... It was good to some extent, not also, you know, that element of not knowing. And, um, you know, there, yes, there's going to be problems, but we'll overcome. But, you know, it's very important to have a positive attitude and mindset overall when you're starting a business because you're going to have a lot of problems you need to solve and a lot of, you know, rejections and all that. And it's going to take a lot of energy. So I only have one last question. I know a lot of founders, after they've had a successful 10-year run, feel like they want to take a little time off. Maybe they also have a little PTSD. Maybe that's your case. But maybe deep down inside, they also wonder whether they would like to do it again and maybe even are excited to do it again. Do you think maybe you'd start another company? Uh, I think I, I think I would, yeah. I think I would definitely. I do think it's rewarding to start a company. And by the way, it is not going to be the first time, right? I learned a lot from, from the previous time. So I think all those learnings and all that baggage is definitely going to help in not making the same mistake twice or in speeding up the construction of the company. So in that sense, I think I'm definitely interested in, in doing something else. It's very rewarding, like the early days when you're you know creating the team 
creating the product. Um, that's almost like magical, those, those moments. And those are the moments that you're going to remember as the company grows. So definitely it's something that hopefully we'll, we'll go through again. Let's see. Ricardo, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on our show today. You've been a great friend to me and many founders here on the podcast. And it was really my pleasure having you on the show today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. This, this, was, uh, this was great. And I hope this was uh, helpful for, for folks listening. And uh, thanks for having me. 